Good morning, and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Say, John is off um, preparing for a big trial that he and I have coming up. I'll be meeting up with him later today, but uh, I'm covering the show while he's busy doing some of that uh, groundwork um, for this big case that we have. And, uh, you know, pretty common situation where, uh, you know, we have six lawyers in our firm and we all participate in our cases together. Doesn't necessarily mean that we're all in court together, but um, we spend a great deal of time um, brainstorming, trying to inject that creativity into how we address many of the allegations that face uh, defendants. And I wanted to talk about a couple things and just use um, the Kyle Rittenhouse case that is still pending in Kenosha County is kind of an example of some of these things that happen when both sides are kind of chomping at the bit to admit different types of evidence to kind of surrounding the circumstances. And if you saw in the news earlier this week, uh, both sides were trying to get in what we call other acts evidence. Um, and that means something that is not an action or uh something that happened that day as part of the actual event that is in question, but things that kind of surround the circumstances. Now, you've heard me talk about this on the show before, but other acts means that it is something that normally wouldn't be relevant, but one side or the other is arguing that it should be relevant for some particular reason in the case. Um, we can look at these examples that were brought up. Uh, the prosecution in Rittenhouse wanted to bring in other examples of what they felt uh, showed that Rittenhouse is kind of a vigilante. He takes matters into his own hands when he probably shouldn't. He takes action before thinking, that kind of stuff. So uh, put another way, they're trying to put a form of character evidence in or trait evidence and that's one method by which other acts can be used in a case is if it makes uh, an argument by one side or the other um, more applicable based on some element of the offense now Rittenhouse of course is charged with a crime that involves intent and intent as we all know, just from common sense, is something that exists in a person's mind. And you can't read a person's mind. You can only uh, observe circumstances surrounding that person's mind and analyze their intent based on their behavior. And normally that uh, applies on at the time when the alleged offense occurs. But again, the, the law permits, under certain circumstances for, in this case, the prosecution trying to get in other instances of conduct, other acts, where Rittenhouse, uh, they're arguing, behaved in a similar way. Now, Judge Schrader um, denied that motion. Likewise, there was a motion from the defense that wanted to get into evidence the fact that one of the individuals that was shot by Rittenhouse was a convicted pedophile, in, in their words. Um, that was denied as well. Now, think about that. So, 
obviously, under the circumstances, I don't think anybody would argue that he would have known that. Um, <laughs> so it was more of a, you know, this is some one of those things where I think it was put out there because there's been intense media coverage of the case. So, you know, it's one of those things you really can't avoid, especially when something is being followed so closely. And here we are talking about it right now. And there are potential jurors that uh, may be listening to this show as I say this, right? So think about it. The strategy here was they want to get the fact um, that one of the people that died was, you know, kind of a bad person. And naturally, the judge isn't going to let that in. But, you know, there's it was in the paper. It was, you know, broadcast. So these potential jurors will probably hear that and uh, make some conclusions about whether the person was worthy of living or whatever the case may be. You know, there's a lot of other weird stuff going on with this case in the background where, um, you know, a law firm gets on the case and then they get off the case and then somebody else takes over and then there's a lot of bickering right now about the money. Um, because as you know, Mr. Rittenhouse is uh, out on bond to the tune of $2 million. And it was set at such a high level with the belief that no one could ever post that amount and that he was a flight risk and all this other stuff. And through a variety of means, there was a pretty intense effort to raise that money and, and have him uh, released from custody. But, of course, the lawyers now are fighting over whose money that is, which is kind of disturbing, if you ask me. But anyway, um... Getting back to this whole issue of how these things play out in court, you know, we got to go back to kind of this general philosophy that jurors need to be protected from irrelevant or, you know, uh, prejudicial information. And I kind of get that. But on the other hand, there is a philosophy out there and I hear it from jurors all the time when they say, hey, you know. I would rather have known all of the circumstances, all of the things that led to this. And on the one hand, we trust jurors a great deal to make a good decision. And we want them informed of what all the evidence is. We want them to consider everything carefully. We want them to be able to sort out what might be a red herring. And that philosophy says, you know, you let them know about the red herring, but tell them that let both sides argue what matters and what doesn't. And it's really kind of a way of respecting the common sense and intellect of jurors. And we're not even talking about one juror. We're talking about collectively. And again, we have this theory that when you put 12 people together in a deliberation room, that if you've got one juror that wasn't paying attention or doesn't really care, doesn't even want to be there. Well, we make up for that by the other 11 or, you know, whatever the breakdown might be of people that insist on doing a good job of analyzing everything. So, you know, that's part of the reason why we have 12 jurors. It's, it's random. It's arbitrary. It could be 50 jurors, I suppose. But, you know, we don't want one is the point or just a couple. Um, that's part of our way of making sure that the facts of a case are determined fairly. So, again, there's there's been 
suggestions along the way as our criminal system has developed over the years that more is better. Let jurors know everything, including whatever shady past a witness might have or a defendant might have or, you know, if the police have been disciplined in the past uh, for some other incident, even if it's not related, and let jurors sort it out, you know. Um, you can know about this, but it might not matter, you know, type thing. But that isn't the way that things work in our system. We have, on the one hand, as I said, we trust jurors to figure things out. We trust jurors to use intellect and common sense. But we have many, many rules that shield jurors from hearing or knowing other things about the case on the assumption that it will confuse them or they will you know, put too much reliance on something. And that is a great deal of guesswork right there involved. Anytime you combine the, sub, the concept of guesswork with um, a very important process, such as determining guilt or innocence, uh, I, I think that's a dangerous concept. Now, I'm not suggesting we go against, you know, hundreds of years of the way that trials have been conducted, but you do have to kind of question and wonder where this whole notion that, you know, oh, we trust jurors to get the right verdict, but on the other hand, we don't trust them to hear stuff that might confuse them or they can't sort out, can't figure out. So, um, you know, along those lines, this Rittenhouse case is a little different because everybody's hearing in the media um, about the things that both sides are trying to do. And I think they're both posturing in such a way that, you know, is this an attempt to influence the jurors ahead of trial? Probably, you know, I think that's part of what's going on here. So we're going to take a break and when we come back, we'll continue the discussion. And I hope you enjoy these commercial messages coming your way. We'll be right back. So a little more about the history of the the other acts rule. Um, as I said in the before the break, there's a general rule that character evidence in and of itself is not admissible. Uh, the theory being that uh, a good person can do bad things and a bad person can do good things, and you know someone's character. Um, whether people like that person or dislike that person really has nothing to do with whether they did or didn't commit a crime. And, you know, we hear the arguments all the time. In fact, you know, it's true that in many uh, sex offense cases, the, you know, defendant, perpetrator, as it were, is not somebody that you would picture in your head as being that type of person. You know, I'm sure we all kind of conjure up an image of a a dirty old man in a trench coat in a back alley, you know, that kind of thing. But oftentimes it's doctors or lawyers or judges or cops, you know, that that have some sort of secret life that's going on and they're doing something pretty bad. So, you know, the it's true that character evidence in and of itself really doesn't have much to do with whether somebody is guilty or not. But that's where this other acts rule comes into play. And it gives one side or the other this opportunity, especially when it relates to someone's, you know, mental state as to what this person is like and things they've done in the past. Now, this rule applies almost exclusively 
and I say almost because it's not entirely uh, the case every time, but almost exclusively uh, to favor the prosecution. And remember, these rules, these statutory rules, they come from laws that are created by our lawmakers, and many of which aren't lawyers, most of which aren't lawyers, as a matter of fact. And I'm not saying they should be. I'm just saying that they kind of tinker around with the system in such a way that you can pretty much rely on the fact that if a legislator is out there uh, proposing to make things easier for the prosecution, it's probably a political maneuver. Um, you know, that's just kind of how it works. So over the years, this the general ban on character evidence has evolved, one might say devolved, into um, something that we've now been living with for several years, but it's called the Greater Latitude Rule. And that's something that gives the prosecution an enhanced opportunity to bring in unseemly um, character evidence about somebody, if they can tie it, albeit loosely, to some sort of concept that they can argue is relevant in the case. So this Greater Latitude Rule has been um, incorporated into a law that says the prosecution, the, the, the judge in a case should give the prosecution a bit more of an advantage in that type of situation, which is really, really weird <laughs> because, you know, I'm in court all the time when a prosecutor's like, we just want a level playing field. We just want it to be fair for both sides, which by the way is kind of a, a misnomer because it's not supposed to be fair for both sides. It never has been that way. It's not supposed to be a level playing field. The burden of proof is on the prosecution always. It never shifts to the defense. So every trial is all about what the prosecution can present to a jury in order to seek a conviction. So it's not level. I mean, it's by design the task of producing and convincing, uh, you know, producing convincing evidence to a jury is on the prosecution only. In fact, it's part of the jury instructions that judges read in every trial that the defense has no obligation to present any evidence because that is not the defense role. The defense role is to defend against what the prosecution brings. So, you know, the, there's always this notion that, and I see it all the time, you know, this um, notion that, okay, we're going to do everything we can. And I mean, when I say we, I mean they. They're going to do everything they can to really just kind of engage in character assassination. And we see cases where, because of this greater latitude rule, prosecutors and investigators will go back you know, decades into a person's past and dig up people that, you know, don't like the defendant for one reason or another. And I dare say that most people in society have somebody in their past that probably doesn't like something about them. Uh, that biggest category is, you know, uh, a nasty breakup <laughs> uh, from a romantic relationship, be it a you know, marriage that results in divorce or a boyfriend-girlfriend situation that results in a breakup or custody battles or, you know, 
alimony disputes and property division and all the things that, you know, we have these family courts, we have these proceedings that get very contested where people that used to be supposedly in love with each other hate each other and they attack each other. So this rule makes it so, you know, prosecutors can go back and find somebody that that hates the defendant for for one reason or another and ask them their opinions about something that they think helps their case and if that seems wrong to you it's because it is <laughs> okay um now that being said when the prosecution tries to do this and the reason why it it passes what we usually call constitutional muster in other words, why is this something that due process permits? Well, it it's permits it because the defense is capable of cross-examining any witness that would say whatever they're going to say. And I get it. You know, that's kind of what's there to um, make sure that one is represented effectively, that one has the opportunity to confront witnesses against them. But a couple things about that to remember. If you're going back decades in some cases and there's this general rule, remember something called the statute of limitations? That means within a certain period of time, a case must be prosecuted. There are different statutes of limitation for different types of crimes. Some of them are quite a bit longer for various reasons. Uh, an intentional homicide, for example, is there is no statute of limitations because the legislature has deemed it to be something that is of great importance that those cases be prosecuted and that there not be a limit, a time limit for when the investigation must occur. Also, for sex-related offenses, um, it's the statute of limitations can be what we call told or extended. Um, and that's based on oftentimes the age of the alleged victim. But otherwise, most cases have a statute of limitations of six years in Wisconsin. So um, why do we have that? Why do we have a statute of limitations in general? Well, it's because naturally, as time goes on, memories fade. Evidence is less um, reliable as more time goes on. Evidence is harder to investigate from both sides as time goes on. And when you, let's add this other layer of the greater latitude, other evidence, other acts evidence that prosecutors oftentimes try to use. They dig up somebody from 20 years ago that maybe the defendant was not very cordial in the process of breaking up with somebody. And this person then comes forward and says, yeah, going back 20 years ago, this guy was interested in you know, watching gymnastics on TV and looking back, I think that was kind of pervy or something like that. Well, you know, part of defending against what anybody says is the opportunity to investigate it and to impeach that person, explore their motives for why they're saying something like that, and to basically track the process by which this information came forward. So if nothing had ever been said about it until 20 years later, well, that's something that you can ask about, but hard to recreate things that happened that long ago. So, you know, we've got all these rules that, quote unquote, promote fairness. 
but it we have the same problem with when it comes to helping the prosecution kind of do more than just call eyewitnesses and do more than just present the evidence and they get to go back and dig up whatever they can find um, and find people out there that are willing to say bad things. Now you might say, okay, well, if that's what they're going to say, then, you know, just deal with it. And it's, and it's fine. Well, and I get that, you know, and yes, of course they can be cross-examined, but we'll talk more about that particular problem when we come back right after these messages. All right. I left off before the break talking about how the, the reason that prosecutors are permitted to get into things that are, you know, perhaps dated or, you know, of questionable relevance. One of the reasons that that's permitted is that, hey, the defendant has a lawyer. The lawyer can cross-examine and ask questions about this. The lawyer can be given notice and can investigate things and so on. Um, and this is always something that's kind of bothered me because, uh, you know, in an ideal world, um, you know, the defense, it shouldn't matter how smart or creative or intelligent or energetic, you know, a defense lawyer is because, well, and, and look at it. We've had cases over the years where they analyze if a defense lawyer was, you know, effective in representing somebody. And to say that someone was ineffective is a huge mountain to climb because there's so much deference given to what a defense lawyer may or may not do, and if they have any possible reasonable explanation about why they didn't ask a question or, or why they did go down a particular path that ended up hurting the defendant, you know, they're, it's basically just uh, results in no issue at all. And, and part of that is because if it were possible to more closely examine a defense lawyer's performance in trial, there would be a lot more reversals of conviction. So, you know, you know, there's this theme that goes through the appellate courts where, on the one hand, yes, uh, appeal courts will look at what happened with a mind's eye towards making sure that it all went right. But on the other hand, um, the vast majority of cases, just because of the economics of the whole thing, um, end up being, you know, not overturned. Not You know, that's just the standard thing. You know, a vast majority, you know, more than 90 something percent of all cases uh, are not interrupted or overturned. And there's reasons for that, including um, what I just mentioned, the economics of the whole thing. Our whole system would fall apart if cases were easily overturned, right? But also they kind of hang their head on the fact that we weren't there and everybody that was in the courtroom is, has a better understanding of what really happened. And if there's any determination made based on credibility, well, we don't know how to do that on paper in the appellate court. So, you know, it's kind of the cards are stacked against you if you have um, an appellate issue that you're raising having to do with something that happened in the trial court level. So, but again, getting back to the thing that's kind of always bothered me is that um, having defended, you know, thousands of cases... Um, every time I am there advocating for my client, uh, I hope and trust that I'm good enough, you know, to fight against the evidence. And 
it, you know, it occurs to me that there are lots of people that aren't good enough that are doing this same thing that I'm doing. And again, I hope I am. But, you know, to be honest, any human being would look back and say, gee, maybe I shouldn't have asked that question that way. Or maybe I should have asked another question on another issue. And it's also fluid as it happens. And it's based on, you know, I mean, again, this is kind of scary. The things such as, you know, did the lawyer get a good rest the night before? Did the lawyer, does the lawyer have, the defense lawyer have any personal problems in his or her life? Uh, you know, are they have uh, a cold or the flu? Um, you know, just a million different things that can affect the outcome of a case, theoretically. You know, but again, the, the law itself says shouldn't matter that much. You know, basically, it's the burden of proof on the prosecution. Defense is there really just to, you know, examine the evidence and, and lead the jury down the path of <clears throat> looking at different aspects of the case and sort of letting them figure it out, I guess. But, you know, there's all, always this feeling that you have to be brilliant. And again, I hope, <laughs> hope with my fingers crossed that I accomplish that. But, you know, like anything in life, anything, um, you always question whether you could have done better. And it's just kind of a, an odd thing to me that defense lawyers in particular, and this is something that I think does need to be changed in our society. Um, you wouldn't go to a brain surgeon and have somebody that just graduated from medical school. Um, you don't know what their grades were like. You don't know if they have any practice or experience in doing it and just say, hey, go ahead, operate on my brain. No, I mean, there's a process because of the importance of that task where it involves years of training and, uh, you know, apprenticeship or, uh, you know, or, you know, studying under another person who's already experienced. And, and that's the medical world, you know, and I know there are mistakes made in the medical world as well. But when you're getting some major operation, some major surgery done on you. Um, you better hope that the person isn't doing it for the very first time on their own and, you know, kind of winging it to see what happens. Um, but that is often what you see with defense lawyers. There's no standard. There's no pre-qualification other than having a law degree and being um, having a license to practice law, which in Wisconsin, they go hand in hand. If you have a law degree from a Wisconsin law school, you automatically are licensed to practice law. Now, I can tell you, when I graduated from law school, I would not have been capable of defending somebody while I was still wet behind the ears in any way, shape, or form. I went through years and years and years of training, practice, working with others, and that was all in the military. And you know, fortunately, the military has sufficient resources to make sure that doing defense work is not something where you're simply, you know, at a constant disadvantage. The training is there. I mean, I've gone to classes all over the country. I've taught classes um, on trial advocacy, and, and, and there's just a great deal of emphasis on, at least in the military, making sure that when someone is there and a person's life or liberty it hangs in the balance, the person who's defending that uh, defendant uh, 
uh, has a lot of training and has gained experience by under the tutelage of others. Um, so that's good. But we don't have that in the civilian world. Anybody who uh, says, hey, I'll take a defense case and I'll, you know, I'll take some money for that. I'll defend somebody. Um, th no limitations, you know, really. You can, you can have literally no experience. So it's something that I, I've been proposing new rules for over the years. Um, back when I was president of the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, uh, I fought for, unsuccessfully, of course, um, standards by which the uh, state bar should apply before somebody can defend uh, someone charged with a crime. And we ran into a number of barriers. First of all, um, there were arguments from people that were more concerned with making money than they were with defending people. And I encountered this a lot, actually, with a lot of the issues that I dealt with at that time. The resistance we got is, well, you know, I deserve the right to take money from people and represent them in court. And how am I supposed to get experience unless I do it? Well, just like in the medical world, you, you, brain surgeons aren't allowed to just start trying and see how it works out. Um, that's terrible. It's an awful idea, right? I mean, because someone's life hangs in the balance. Um, but that's where, you know, honestly, I can tell you that it was many, many years before I felt that I had the qualifications to really, you know, try a case in in top form and i'm still learning every day and that's one good thing about being part of a firm that has as many lawyers and support staff as we do with two different offices is that you know there's a great deal of input and um you know constructive criticism from others that are involved in the process um so that's lacking sometimes and again you know I, i'm not trying to say don't hire a lawyer that has less than a certain amount of experience. What I'm saying is I'm just I'm identifying a problem in our system whereby there is no oversight. And if you get somebody who doesn't really you know, have a full grasp on what they're doing or they don't have sufficient experience, guess what? There's literally no remedy. As long as that person is, you know, you've heard the expression, um, if the person has a pulse, the court's going to find that they were effective. person doesn't even have to be awake. There was a case years ago, I'm sure. If you pay attention to these kind of things, you may have heard, but there was a lawyer that slept through the trial, and they said, well, yeah, he may have slept through the trial, but, you know, he still was there, you know. <laughs> anyway, time for another break. We'll be right back. So everything I've been talking about kind of ties into um, another concept that, again, it, it just kind of scares me that our system um, has so many flaws, so many vulnerabilities in it. And, you know, you hear this a lot on this radio show, but we have to examine going back as to why wrongful convictions occur. And let me just define again for you wrongful convictions. When somebody is convicted of something they didn't do, an innocent person has been convicted. And up until, you know, a couple decades ago, that it, it happened and people were 
unable to prove their innocence. And, and you should never have to prove your innocence. But the point is that the things that lead to wrongful convictions are numerous. I mean, there's a myriad of factors, but they all have to do with human vulnerability. Starting with an investigation, there may be eyewitnesses that think they saw something, but then through the process of investigation, that memory gets manipulated or changed, you know, perhaps unwittingly, but sometimes intentionally. And then there's this whole advocacy part of it. And, you know, it sounds like a good word, but what it really means is that it's a battle between two sides. And it's almost like, you know, we're, we're, someone's accused of the crime and they got to go in to the arena in ancient Rome and battle a tiger. And then if the person lives, they're innocent. And if they die, they're guilty. You know, you know what I mean? It's, it's like this adversarial us against them philosophy. Prosecutors don't trust defense lawyers. Defense lawyers don't trust prosecutors. Um, everybody, um, has you know suspicions about different motives and i will tell you when a trial is going on it does feel like the other side is trying to score a bunch of points unfairly you know um trying to you know not you know, prosecutors do this all the time if there's evidence that might make their case look worse they don't present it they hold it back why because they want to win and you know so to analogize a trial like it's a sporting event, I mean, it's just offensive, you know, like if like if it's tennis and they hit the ball and I hit the ball back, they hit the ball to me, I hit the ball back. You know, there's a human being in the middle of all this that, um, you know, we, we've, we can identify the fact that this has been an ongoing problem with one simple point, and that is there was a perceived need years ago to start developing what we now call forensic sciences. And if you pay attention to these sorts of things, the word forensic has sort of lost its luster uh, because that term initially was used in such a way to bolster or kind of like give some footing to the idea that human beings that observe and see things are, are vulnerable. But let's go ahead and add some uh, science on top of it. But practically all of the quote-unquote science that has been created in an effort to help convict people, you know, like CSI stuff, has been created by prosecutorial agencies or scientists that work for prosecutors. And much like we're well aware of the battles that go on in civil cases where an expert will say one thing and then a different expert will say a completely different thing. And it all depends on who gets paid more money, you know, to render that opinion and kind of manipulate things and come into court and try and help one side win or the other. Well, in criminal cases, the odds are incredibly stacked in favor of the prosecution in those types of things because prosecutors don't have to pay anything for their own quote-unquote experts to come in and say things and they get salaried and benefits to help the prosecutors you know and if a prosecutor calls 10 expert witnesses it's there's no financial problem with that prosecutor just says i want this person from the state crime lab or the you know or the fbi or whatever to come and testify you know who's paying for that taxpayers right well what about the the defendant who, um, you know, 
think about your average person, do they have the ability to pay tens of thousands of dollars uh, to bring in somebody who might have the ability, the scientific and intellectual ability to counter much of this manufactured science? In most cases, no. In practically every case, no. And then it comes down to money. We live in a world where the people that have, you know, spendable money, you know, savings accounts, assets, etc., are much better able to defend themselves against allegations than people that don't have those assets. There are ways that someone can seek funding from the court if necessary, but those requests are often denied. And there is this general sense in the legal world that when a scientist comes in and renders an opinion that it's practically, you know, unflappable, not capable of being challenged, um, you know, from, from a judge's perspective. Well, if that's what they're going to say and they have qualifications, they're an expert, you know, then what's the deal? You know, that's bad for your client. Um, but again, I'm, I'm showing you that this proves that we have these human fallibilities throughout the process. And we depend, it depends greatly on, you know, the personalities of the people involved. And doesn't that scare you? I mean, it scares me because um, the outcome of a case can be based on so many factors that have nothing to do with what we really want. And what we, I'll tell you what we really want. We, as American citizens, want a system that we know will be fair. Why is that important? Because as you go about your daily life and you hold your head up high as one who has constitutional rights that are there to protect you against arbitrariness or, you know, absolute martial law and the rule of the government, the role of the government controlling your life, you'd like to have faith that it's not being done in such a way that your freedom is in jeopardy because of um, arbitrary or circumstantial innuendo or suspicion. Because, as we all know, your next-door neighbor might not like the music you play, or your dog barks too much, or you didn't shovel your part of the walk quite right. You know, these are disputes that have gone on through the history of neighbors living next to each other. Or, as we discussed before, it's not at all unusual that people have at least, you know, good or bad opinions about others. And all of that seems to influence, um, you know, the, the outcome of these processes. Add to that a layer of, you know, we have a prosecuting agency that is led by someone who has to seek office and become elected. And then all the people that work for that elected official have to, you know, follow an agenda in order to strengthen that district attorney's, you know, track record and uh, make sure that they appear to be tough on crime and etc. So, you know, there's pressure on the prosecutors to portray a certain image as well. So add a little bit of careerism and, uh, you know, merit seeking to the process, and you can see why um, the process of prosecuting people can become 
something where it's we're not seeking just they aren't seeking justice or a just outcome they're going to try their best to get a conviction there is an ethical rule that says prosecutors are not to merely seek a conviction but they are to seek justice and that when a prosecutor believes him or herself that there is reasonable doubt in a case that they shall not prosecute the case but ask any prosecutor when they're going forward on a case what their internal subjective beliefs are in that context and 10 times out of 10 they'll believe that they're doing the right thing and as when you're in an advocacy role and i i am uh subject to this weakness myself i don't see things objectively i don't look at it like okay take a step back what really happened here no i'm fighting for uh a person and i see things a certain way you know it sort of affects how you perceive things and how what you think is fair and what you don't think is fair and uh you know it's something that when the other side is thinking that and believing that it's the easiest thing in the world to tell yourself that you believe beyond a reasonable doubt that the person's guilty and sometimes it's just wishful thinking because if if someone think about it if someone has been wrongfully charged it's very very difficult to kind of undo everything that happened uh leading up to that process well i gotta go it's the end of the show tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 whbl this has been legal defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.